this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, it's John Warlow. So after five years of hosting Built to Sell Radio. I've distilled the secrets from the most successful founders into the ultimate field guide, the art of selling your business, winning strategies, and secret hacks for exiting on top is now available. The art of selling your business is a playbook for punching above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, you may still be years away from selling, but there are actions you can take now that will make your business irresistible to an acquire in the future. And in this book, you'll get answers to your most vexing questions like, when's the right time to sell? How should I value my business? What are the biggest mistakes owners make when they sell? How do I get multiple offers? How do I attract an offer from an acquirer without looking like I'm desperate to sell? How many companies should I approach? How do I separate real acquirers from tire kickers? When in the process do I reveal my numbers? When and how do I tell my employees? How do I avoid retrading when the buyer drops their price during diligence? In the age old, how do I avoid an earnout? Along with actionable answers to the questions, You'll also get a playbook for defending yourself against the dirty tricks used by the most unscrupulous acquirers, including how to defend yourself against retrading, acquirers who intentionally set unattainable earnout goals, financing an acquirer's business, becoming a prop deal, strategic pacing, competitors posing as acquirers, accepting illiquid or overvalued shares for your business in lieu of cash and giving away your retained earnings as part of your deal. You'll also get easy to understand definitions of some of the most bewildering terms acquirers use in negotiating to buy your business. Stuff like tipping basket, covenant, downstroke, escrow, indemnification, earnout, Q of E, reps and warranties, churn. I'm just about to throw up just using all this industry lingo, but you'll get a definition for each of them in an easy to understand package. If you order The Art of Selling Your Business today, you'll receive a collection of thank you gifts to enjoy alongside the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. So this one falls into the category of cautionary tale. When you build a business, if it's dependent on a single supplier or even a small cadre of suppliers, you can be at their mercy. And as my next guest, Robert Hartline, discovered it can seriously discount the value of your business, in his case, to the tune of $4 million. To tell you the entire story, here is Robert Hartline. Robert Hartline, welcome to Build Cell Radio. John, good to see you. Yeah, for sure. So you mind telling people where you're dialing in from today? So right now I'm in Uvita, Costa Rica, it's uh, uh, a little vacation home that we got a couple of years ago. We were actually on House Hunters International. That was a fun little story. Oh, but, no way. but uh, if you were to go to House Hunters International and and uh, look up Uvita, Costa Rica, I think our show aired in 
2016 or something. Fun. So this is what you can look forward to when you sell your company. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, uh, the experience of being on a TV show was fun. It was a whole lot of fun, but what's even more fun is I was, uh, looking back at the video actually a couple of days ago, I was editing together a, a different video and I came across it and it, it was just a really great representation of what was going on in my life then, because, you know, when everything's like quality video, when you get it, you know, like I got some really great family, um, video that I, I could not ever recreate on my own because it's done by professionals. So that was awesome. So I have a little moment in time, a little capsule I can go back to with the family and, and, and watch how we were back there. <laughs> awesome. was fun. Well, let's rewind the tape a little bit. I'd love to hear the, you know, the story of your wireless company. So how did it start? How did you kind of scale up? What was the, what's the story behind your business? So, uh, you know, uh, I started selling phones out of the back of my car, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 1994, nobody had cell phones. Uh, and in fact, I worked for a company called Telego, which was a, a phone that was a, basically a cordless phone when you're at your house and a, and a, and a cell phone on your way. And back then, you got to put yourself in 94. The people who had phone was attorneys, business people. I mean, it wasn't a commonplace. I'll and tell you I, what I had. I, I, was, yeah. I was working in a little town called Sudbury. It was my first job at university. I worked at a, at a radio station. And my job was to do the remote broadcast, to set up for the remote broadcast. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to touch the actual equipment, but <laughs> I had to like set up the antennas and stuff like that. And they gave me a phone in a bag. Do you remember these? They had oh, yeah. like a shoulder strap, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and it was like this thing that was the size of like a shoebox, and you could sort of put it on this on your shoulder. And <laughs> now I'm dating myself, but that was my first cell phone. That was, so it that sounds was like it. you and I had a very similar indoctrination yeah. to the cell phone business. No, absolutely. And, and, and honestly, uh, it, it was really funny because I would go and I would knock on door. I would knock on doors, and uh, I had to convince people the value of having a phone when they were away from their house. And really, the primary reason was safety security, you know, and it was funny, but make a long story short, I did the door to door thing for a couple of years, started working uh, for Verizon. Back then it was called Verizon Wireless. Then Nextel launched in Nashville, Tennessee in 1998. And about 10 months later, I started Absolute Wireless and, you know, um, kept running. Um, we, we sold all kinds of different brands and we, we grew up to our peak, uh, to about 58 locations. Um, two, two years in a row, we were fastest growing company, uh, in middle Tennessee. And that was really attributed to, uh, actually an, an EO event. And, uh, I was, I was, um, I forgot you, you're probably, be able to mention the person's name who, who uh, speaks to a lot of EO events. It was at a nerve event talking about growing through scale. Hmm. And, um, and it occurred to me like, man, why do I need to try to grow organically one store at a time? Can I find someone who wants to sell their chain that maybe he's not doing well? And uh, so really I got really, sh I sharpened the, the toolbox back in, um, 15 and 16 to really get focused on scaling in a, in a different way. And uh, we dramatically increased our store count and our revenue grew. Tell me about the, the, the financial model to acquiring a wireless dealer. So what does that look like? How did you acquire them? How did you raise the money to do that? What was that? What, what did that look like? 
Well, you know, it's, it's funny too. Cause um, <laughs> it sounds so crazy. Cause I had uh, during, you know, you go to a conference and you, you hear lots of things and you, you take action on a few things. And there was just this two guys, Jack Daly is one for sure. Okay. Um, and I know you're familiar with Jack Daly and really I got my head wrapped around how you, how you grow your sales with an existing sales force by be, really being intentional about the way you hire people and how you manage people, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, in terms of the, the mechanics um, uh, you have the, the wireless um, brand, they have retailers that represent their brand and they're independent businesses that they, they, they sell and, and uh, services the product. They basically do everything the carrier does but they have their own business umbrella of the way they, you know, lead their organization and the way you lead your sales team, the way you lead your meetings. But what we sold was not something a variable that I could control, but what was under our control is how we, how we paid, uh, how we paid our compensation. Those were variables that we could do, but in terms of how do you evaluate, how you uh, pick stores to build, you know, people run their businesses in different ways. And I could take a look at someone's model. I could see, you know, what were they paying their salespeople? What was their turnover rate? Uh, uh, how did they market? We really uncovered how we could efficiently market to the local customer base. And so it made it easier when I go to acquire. It's like, are they doing X, Y, and Z? Oh, they're not. I can add another 20 points to my bottom line if I institute this strategy. So you would hold these strategies, I'm assuming, close to your vest. You didn't share with the old owner that you had all these sort of secrets to make no. it more profitable. You just say, well, so how did you get them to like, did you ask them like, what do you want for your dealership? Did, did they, did you make well, it? Honestly, you know, <laughs> you would think it would work out that way, but typically the best Avenue was the dealer coming to you and going, Hey, Robert, we like the way you're running these stores, but we don't like the way George is running these stores. And what would often happen, it would be, you know, I, I had several stores that were someone violated some agreement with the contract with the, with the carrier and the carrier would say, Hey, just so you know, there's these six locations over here that you could probably work out some with the landlord. And that's how a lot of those even happened. So um, you weren't actually paying for the location. You were just as, as absorbing the lease in some cases. Sometimes I we had the opportunity we absorbed the location. Uh, there was some times where we actually paid uh, for you know uh, you know we acquired like twenty six locations in Atlanta and uh, in Alabama, and that was an acquisition that I thought in in principle made a lot of sense. And turned out I was you know all the mathematics, you know all the planning, all the assumptions that you make once you get in there you don't realize like for instance, in that particular deal that everyone was a fraudulent person that worked in that company just about. And as soon as I took ownership, there was, we, we had a tremendous amount of, of theft and losses that, you know, one, and it was no wonder the other dealer was going out of business. Uh, they were, they were grossly mismanaged and had been for a number of years. Um, and, uh, when I came aboard and, and, and you, you learned this and you've seen this over and over, if you take an organization that is unorganized and doesn't have structure, and then you come in and you provide structure, you're going to flip nearly a hundred percent of the staff. 
you know, people that are in an organization that has no structure, once you provide the structure, they typically are running towards the door. <laughs> what sort of stuff did you systematize? Like in that situation, like what, what sort of activities, what, what had the biggest impact to systematize? Uh, well, in that particular situation, I had to really systematize the hiring process, uh, how we onboarded people. That That is something that we, we got pretty good at and really uh, figured out some key things that we could do that allowed us to communicate with our team better. You know, one of the things I've quickly learned, you know, we, you know at our peak, we had 350 people and that's a lot of people. Uh, to manage, you know, we had, we had structures, we had area managers, we had district managers, we had store managers, assistant man, you have this nice little layer, but in communicating to that team, that's the toughest part is when you have retail people, and these are generally uh, early 20 somethings, typically their first career, right? And um, they've got so many distractions going on. It is hard to get their attention. It's hard to get in front of them. And email is a very inefficient um, program. So we, we started using an app called Marco Polo. It's an app that allows you to do asynchronous video. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. Hmm. Um, but uh, it's a fantastic way to create groups record video, um, and really communicate. And we use that primarily. Uh, it was very helpful with the onboarding process. So you would record videos of you saying kind of welcome to the company. Yeah. Yeah. What else did you do? And I love this. So like, what else did you do in those videos in addition to the kind of warm and fuzzy stuff? Well, um, for one, we would communicate, you know, it's my belief that, uh, well, it's not just mine. It's lots of people. Winners need to be recognized. And so we would use Marco Polo because it's on demand. I could literally pull up my Marco Polo, pull up a channel. And let's say I'm going to talk to the Southeast region, right? I hit the button, I start talking and they can see that happening in real time and they can respond, reply, whatever. But I would use that to, um, to congratulate and recognize good performance um, and then I would have another channel that would be for new hires and I would kind of communicate differently to a new group of people. And then I would use some of the similar tactics that you do with a drip email campaign when you're signing up a new, a new customer and you may say you got someone in a trial process and you're going to show them this email one day and the next day you're going to show them this, but you're not going to show them everything, right? The same with a new hire. You come aboard, I, I could send you all this stuff or I can drip a few things out to you. And so what I would do is I would take a 30 day uh, drip campaign and give you a little piece every single day. It may be a sentence. Um, you know, most people don't have the attention span to make it past a few points. And um, what's very common in, in, in any business is uh, your, you have a situation that happened last week that's a reoccurring issue right? But you hired a new person today, they don't know those past issues. And so what I would do is I would go through and reoccurring issues that would just tend to always happen. I'd put it in the drip email sequence specifically for those new hires. So they got to experience what that, you know, what was common for us, it was kind of crazy, but P 
people would call the store asking for our login credentials. And a new hire, guess what they would do? They get a call. Hey, this is XYZ, you know, wireless insert wireless carrier here. Uh, we're trying to log into your system because you got this order that's busted and Mr. Jones has got a, an account that's messed up. We need to fix it for you. What's your password? And they're a new hire, right? What do they do? They're like, they want to help. You know, they're like, oh, sure. Here's my code. And no matter how much you say it in new hire orientation, do not give your codes to anybody. Uh, they, they just, so we would put these little tips in a drip email. Got it. So that's one of the things you did to systematize the business in Alabama, the 24 locations. That's, that's helpful. How did, how did that overall impact the company? I mean, you, you, you bought it, there was fraud, there were lots of problems. Oh, that year we lost a million dollars. Um, and, and what, what's so crazy about that is, is as soon as we, as soon as we got those locations, like within a week, we had a, uh, burglary in the middle of the night. And so what a lot of people don't know about the wireless business is, um, these phones, these thousand dollar, $1,500 devices that, that you see in the stores or whatnot, um, they have real value. You know, we would pay a thousand dollars for that new iPhone. Right. And it would go into my um, safe. Well, um, there's organized crime and they literally have people traveling the country that will break into the business next to yours. They will climb through the ceiling. They will break open a door, a, a wall, disable the alarm system and take a blowtorch, open the safe and walk with 80 grand worth of product. It happened literally the weekend after I moved to Costa Rica, after buying all those stores, we had two break-ins back to back, 80 grand a pop. And, um, and, and I had to systematize security. I had, I had Filipinos in the middle of the night watching cameras, watching live footage. Uh, we prevented a number of break-ins uh, through leveraging uh, a loss prevention team in the middle of the night. But during the day, I had people coming in pretending to be other people with fake IDs, going from store to store, getting phones, working with employees to to steal. So we lost a million dollars. I mean, it was a, it was a nightmare. Uh, and, you know, once I figured out how to, I had to go from this mindset of, of, uh, of I, I went from I went from being positive and enthusiastic about growing sales to a world of scarcity. Because when everybody is when you have an, all this theft, what do you do when you start thinking with that scarcity mindset? It's it's toxic. And so I, I was I, I literally moved into this world where I was building a loss prevention team. I had people here in Costa Rica that had uh, I had a, a call center of 10 people that would literally have screens up. And when they were running a transaction, they would go through their database and see if this person had been in other places doing the same thing. And I mean, we prevented a lot, but it was a it was a very expensive it was a very expensive uh, road to go to to try to stop it. What did that do to your mindset, your psyche, going from excitement, enthusiasm to, as in your own words, scarcity? 
it, it, it really, I mean, I, it, it, I struggled sleeping, you know? Um, and then, and then we went from that and, and <laughs> just when we had figured that out, it was like, all right, we got the call center here. We got the night thing. Uh, we've, we prevented about three, uh, armed robbery. I mean, uh, robberies in the middle of the night. Um, and then we started having armed robberies and, and, uh, within a span of six months, we had eight armed robberies and, and that was a whole new scale that I had never experienced. I mean, when you, when you, when you sit with an employee that had had a gun in their face, I mean, it is, there's just, there's no repairing that person when they, when they have their, their lives threatened. And so where was my mindset? It was in the gutter, dude. <laughs> it was in the gutter. It took me, it, it, it took me, uh, it, that was a whole year, that whole next year, I think it was 2018 where the, or 19, it, it was, it was, it was ugly. And was that part of the rationale or the trigger that wanted, made you want to sell? Like what, what, what triggered you? Oh gosh. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it was an exhausting journey. Um, you know, 2020 was the, the nail in the coffin, you know, it, it's one thing to deal with the struggles of, of retail, but it's another when um, people are scared to come to work because of their health. Right. Um, this, was, uh, this is COVID uh, March of 2020. Yeah. You own the business at this point. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was really uh, COVID was a lot, a lot of it, the, 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 the challenges with staff. Um, and then, you know, I, one of the things that I, I think we do not talk enough about is these essential employees that were going to work like champs are really heroes that did not get enough street cred out of 2020 as they should have. Cause these people work their fannies off dealing with hostile and uh, hostile customers, you know, with the mask mandates and, and, you know, there was just an added tension that was uh, just over and above than you, you would ever want to deal with running an enterprise, but it, it was just exhausting. So do you remember what the straw that broke the camel's back was like, what day, what were you doing when you decided, okay, that's it. I'm selling. Well, one of the things I've always, so I, I have these, I have some other businesses that I'm involved in and uh, mostly in the software space. And I enjoy SaaS software as a service. And you just don't have the, the mechanics of dealing with the employee challenges and hiring and whatnot. It, it's, it was, so, you know, it, at the end of the day, uh, one of the straws was, you know, we, we were in a transition where one wireless carrier bought another wireless carrier in our brand changed due to this, this, this thing. Well, when the launch happened, they took our stores off of Google. And in fact, every other dealer that was like mine, they took us off Google. And so when the transfer happened back in August of 2020, I saw my call volume drop 30%. I saw my store traffic. And, and one of the things about the wireless business that's super awesome is you get to see everybody's data. 
you know, John, if, you, if, if I gave you a spreadsheet every single day with all your key competitors and what they were doing, you would modify your business. You would prove your business. You would use that as a, as, as a measuring stick to make it better. Right. Sure. Well, that's one of the things I loved about this business because it's very um, metric driven. And so I literally could tell you how many people came to the store yesterday. I could say how many people called the store yesterday. I mean, we had all this data and overnight, uh, because we were taken off of Google and the carrier was moving that traffic to their corporate locations. Oh, I see. I, I was like, what would motivate them to want to get rid yes. of these guys? Yeah, but, yeah. So this, so the, the, you know, this merger happened between these dealers, excuse me, these carriers, the carriers are like, well, screw this. I'm going to, I'm going to send all the organic search traffic to our corporate yeah. stores where we get all the margin. We've got our corporate employees. We're going to take care of these dealers are sort of expendable. Oh, exactly. And, you know, you know, that was in August. Now, even before then we had, they gave us a notice that we had to close 10 stores and um, that was during the you're COVID thing. Business. Like how did that, like, how do they dictate to you? Like you're like, why are they in the, what gives them the right to dictate to you in that? Way? I believe I, this is a, you know, it, it, phones have been out for 30 years. Okay. Right. But the industry is very new. It is very new. And, and they really are bypassing probably some franchise laws mm. that it, it is probably because it, 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 this was not a franchise, but it was treated like a franchise business. You know, basically we're told what to do, when to open, when to, you know, you know, what to sell, what price to sell it at. Everything that you would do in a franchise, franchise, franchise or relationship, but without the protection of of state local laws about uh, about how to treat those people. Um, so back in August, I noticed all this dip in, in sales. And at the moment, I didn't realize that what had happened with with our Google listings. All I knew is that I was adamant about managing our Google listings. And they came to us on the eve of the transfer and like, oh, we need to have access to your accounts. I'll say, I was like, I don't want to give you access, but it's in your contract. You have to do that. Okay. So I do that and poof, uh, we don't exist. And so, so in beginning of August, I see sales are down drastically in the first two weeks. And I'm like, I'm going to figure out what the hell's going on. I literally got in my car. I got an RV. I literally was going store to store. And on my visits, I would type in insert wireless store name nearby. You know, I would go to Lebanon, Tennessee, and I would type that in and my stores would not show. And everywhere I would go, I would run into this situation where I literally had to get a carry a list to stores with me to, to even Google to know where they are, because I was so used to just Googling it and sure. be able to drive to it. And, and, and that also gave me indications if the listing was wrong or things like that. But once, once I discovered that I fought like mad, dude, I got, I got other dealers involved. That's like, we got to scream and holler. We got to get this fixed silence. Not helpful. Um, and I, I just, it, it was one of those things that uh, between that and my father-in-law passing away, I was just exhausted. And there's something else, John, that I, I think is important for your, for your listeners to hear is, you know, one key thing that we did, like a lot of organizations do, we went remote 
you know, we had an office staff that were, you know, they were in an office, you know, all your team members working together. We had a great, great culture as a, you know, uh, as a company, um, everybody getting along, working well together. And then we went remote, you had the added pressure of staff that had kids to put an online education. They were not available. And the, the mechanics of all the systems that we had built really got stressed and things weren't happening in the stores. Operations wasn't working like it used to. And, and it wasn't solely because of our team. It just lacked that, you know, that synergy that we were so accustomed to. And, uh, you know, I used to have this feeling that I, I used to really be a big believer in remote work. And I have grown after 2020 to realize that remote work is not for everyone. <laughs> it takes a certain type of person that, that can pull off um, working remote. So, okay. So they delist you from Google. Everybody's working remote. Employees are stressed and doing two, you know, home health care, like home care as well as their, their day job. Like, what did you, what did you do? Did you, did you hire a broker to sell the company? Did you, did you get an offer? Like, well, we, we, we got a, uh, we got a, uh, I got a LinkedIn, you know, the, it was, what's, what's crazy. So you had these legacy dealers and then you had the new brand and the new brand had existing dealers, right? Well, what happens when you have a long-term business relationship? You're, you, you've built, I had 20 years plus of solid, brand relationships. Well, insert new brand. I have no relationships. Mm -hmm. And so all of those old relationships evaporated. So they had a whole new team and they didn't know me from a hole in the wall, you know, building, you know, we take for granted our relationships, you know, we really do. Um, and we've all seen it when, you know, one vendor changes, ownership and then new people come in, you, you lose some of the tightness um, relationships that you have. And, and that all just evaporated. Um, so the, the legacy people, the legacy brand, um, because they were treated like that, the, 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 the new brand that they were accustomed to doing very well, luckily for us, you know, we, they wanted to buy our stores. So the new brand dealers, they were actively wanting to, you know, and, and, and from their perspective, they're looking at us like, you guys are a bunch of bozos. You don't know what you're doing. And we're like, uh, you take anybody off Google on how good you are. You're not going to be as good. Like you, you, you know, <laughs> you need Google. Yeah. And, and so the dealers that were with this, you know, the acquiring brand, were they delisted from Google as well? Or yeah, all of them. They were. So all how was acquiring you going to help them? Uh, well, you know, the, a matter of scale, mm. you know, they, they were doing very well and have been at the brand. The brand is a, a super great brand. I mean, it, it, from a, from a customer relationship, the brand is solid, probably the, the best in the business. Mm -hmm. And so they had been doing very, very well for many, many years. And so uh, for them, it's, it's a matter of scale. You know, uh, we had a great footprint and our footprint mesh mess. I'm sorry. It, it 
meshed with their existing footprint. So it's just a matter of, you know, to, to add uh, a few more stores into an existing uh, group of stores. It just makes a lot of sense. So you got a LinkedIn message from one of these yep. dealer groups and, yep. and what do they say? Basically let's get together and, and chat. And um, it was, you know, for me, I was, uh, I was, I had no intention rolling into 2020 that, that I was going to sell the business. Uh, you know, I've, I've wanted to sell it, but you know, I knew this big uh, merger was happening and this merger had been in the works for four years and we were literally in purgatory waiting for this thing to happen. So there was no growth. There was no new opportunities. We were just running a dead brand until the transition happened. And mm. all the dealers were just super elated and excited that this is finally going to be done. And then when it happens, it was like, Oh my gosh, uh, they don't really care about us. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's, that's why I tell everyone when you're, you know, you're starting a business you know, you can take the path, which seems nice, which seems interesting. If you're going to go into the franchise route, you think all these things are taken care of, which please understand, you know, when your brand is tarnished because of the, you know, either the brand representative in case of Subway or, you know, you name something, you're really at this risk of putting your fortune in something that you have zero control over. Mm-hmm. And so lots of advantages when you're selecting the way and what you're going to be doing, you know, uh, there's positives and negatives on, on doing franchises for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard the, the expression, don't build your house on rented land, meaning that's what uh, it is. That's yeah. what it is. And, but there's, there's people that, that have fortunes because they've done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a risk. It's the asterisks that you just got to be comfortable with that, that, something could happen beyond your control that, that could change it. So you get this LinkedIn uh, comment saying, Hey, let's get together. Who made the first move? Like, did they say like, what do you want for your company? Did they put a number in front of you? Like, do you remember how that worked? Well, you know, we, you know, we, they came down and visited. Uh, We, we gave them, you know, I, I gave them what I thought we were worth and what, what ultimately we would sell for. And uh, in fact, that dollar value is exactly um, what the offer was. Um, But you know how John, these things work out. (laughs) They don't always work out as you wish. Right. Uh, Because uh, you know, after we got uh, the initial offer, a few weeks later, uh, the carrier announced that they were closing even more locations than they already closed that year. And, uh, and it was, well, just back up earlier in the year, they had us close. They had close, they had several other dealers close locations as well. It wasn't, we weren't targeted. We weren't focused on that way. It was nothing to do with that. It was just generally what, what they do. They, they play these little shell games with, you know, moving the chess pieces around and, um, and they, uh, the, 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 we get a price two weeks later, we get a notification from, uh, the brand saying, Hey, we're going to close these other ones. And our, when our amount went from what I thought was a very fair price that I could be very comfortable with down to, you know, a discount of $4 million. 
Um, yeah. How did you come up with the number, the original number? Like, was that based on what you wanted, what you wanted for, what you needed to live for the rest of your life? Was it based on what you th- like, some sort of valuation metric that that you'd heard? Yeah, of? Like, it, it, was- I wish I wish I could go back to you and and tell you that I had more, I had more um, um, thought behind it than I did. It really wasn't, dude. I was exhausted. <laughs> like, I you could not have picked a better way to buy my business. Let's see. How can we um, completely stress out the owner, have the owner uh, lose uh, his father-in-law in October? How can we throw all these things and these stresses and then go to him and say, hey, you want to sell your business? You could not have picked a better between the pandemic uh, and the way that we were treated, like the way I was treated, the way uh, leadership was treated in our company uh, from from all kinds of, I was running where I just couldn't do anymore. I, I, I would, I wasn't sleeping. I, I wear a, you're this ring that tracks my sleep. Yeah. yeah. And um, man, I, I look like I, I thought I you know, I'm very active. I work out a lot. Uh, I stay healthy. I don't drink, but dude, I, I, I would, I would literally think that I needed to go to the doctor cause I was going to have a heart attack. I, I just thought that was going to happen. So I mean, uh, in terms of buying a business, when you get somebody that is weak and tired, that is a really good time to give them an offer. Yeah. So what was your reaction when they said that they were dropping the price by $4 million? What, what did you do in response to that? There was nothing to do. I mean, uh, you know, they, they were buying X number of stores on their, on the, the agreement. And when that number of changed, it obviously changed, you know, what was uh, a bit of a surprise that I didn't, I did never plan for. And it's a very common trick that everybody uses when you, when you go and uh, sell your business is, you know, you kind of come up with this dollar value and then they're like, Oh, how about you finance it? Right. And you, you've, you, you, instead of disclosing some of my advice to others in the sales process, go ahead and state, Hey, I'm not going to do any owner financing. Uh, you know, knowing that up front would make a huge difference. Um, and maybe you're comfortable with that. Maybe that's commonplace in your business, but I honestly was not thinking thoroughly enough to look forward and like anticipate that, so you'd agreed to the lower price and then they turned around and asked you to finance it. Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> what was your reaction to that? Well, I, again, you know, nothing had changed from that second offer. It wasn't like the business suddenly got better. You know, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I'm looking at my financials and seeing that, uh, you know, due, due to the thing they're doing with, with our, our Google traffic, uh, it, it wasn't like things were getting better. Like, even fact, when I sold in December, this, the still problem existed that, that the new owners had to, to, had to deal with. Um, but for me, um, I, I was still, it, 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 it almost got comical. You're just like, what else are you going you gonna to give me? And, you know, I was lucky. I, I was lucky because at the end of the day, I got my loans paid off, you know, and I, when I sold the business, 
um, uh, we still had not had our PPP money. And so when you took the loans out, the PPP, it was like, all I could think, John, was, well, thank God I don't have 46 leases to worry about. <laughs> and I'm not reaching out to these people and, 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 and filing bankruptcy. <laughs> and so, you know, at the end of the day, I get to live to tell the tale and I, 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 I get enough. I have enough to, to carry me on in, in, the, in the new ventures. But I didn't walk away with that. The FU money that I keep hearing stories about. Huh. So when they asked you to own or finance it, like, did you agree to finance poor part of the sale? Yeah, we, sale? We, we, we took a lump sum and then uh, the rest is paid out over two years. Do you mind if I ask what proportion you took in cash versus? Uh, uh, it was about 60, 40. Yeah. And the finance piece was that, did you get a coupon? Like, was there any interest rate associated with that? Like what was the, no, that was, that was another thing I, I, I did not negotiate adequately. So are they, have they been good to their word to pay yeah. you out? So yeah, far? they've been, yeah. they've been excellent through the, the, the transition. And there was, there was, there was, there was some surprises as always. And, and what you, you know, you, one thing that everyone talks about the sale of a business, but they don't talk about the aftermath. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of aftermath when you, especially in the retail uh, side, you know, if, if I had, you know, when we saw we had 46 locations and you have to do a sign, I'm assume for every lease. So you have to negotiate with 47 landlords and, you know, getting the, the lease to go into the new name. Well, the landlord's like, I don't know these new people. You've been a great le- renter for the last 10 years, but I don't know these new people. And then you got to, you got to coax them and say, well, I'm not here anymore. So these guys are going to pay you. And, and that those 46 conversations are tough. And then, and, you know, and to be clear, why is that your problem? Did they buy your, your assets or the shares of your company? They, they basically bought the assets, which is technically the, so the, the, those liabilities, those leases that you personally signed were in your name and you right. were personally on the hook yeah. for them. If a landlord had said, no, I'm not, I'm not transferring. You would have had to, honor that. Is that right? Yeah. In, in theory, but you know, most landlords, you know, it's, it's a simple math equation. Hey, these people <laughs> are out of business. They're not going to keep paying you. So, but you, you know, uh, so yeah. Got it. So what other personal liabilities did you have to work through? Like <sighs> leases were one, were there other things that you were like, Oh man, I didn't, didn't, didn't expect this one. Oh no, it's, it's, it's anything from, uh, vendors and inventory to unload, man. I had, I had three, I had $300,000 with the product that's the sitting phones. in a warehouse at phones and accessories that, I mean, I'm sitting here working with Amazon and eBay to get rid of them. And it, it was, it, it got to where I just, I gave up. I basically, gave away accessories um, just to get them, you know, cause I was paying space and time and energy to, to manage them. But you know, what I did learn, I think is valuable for everyone. I learned that, you know, we all have staff that work for us in operations and the staff and operations are using tools, cloud tools, mostly, whether they're email, they're using, uh, they're using QuickBooks online, they're using, all these HR tools. And I will tell you, John, probably the best lesson, if I could go do this again, let's say I go back in time and it is July 23rd, 
2020, I would go back and I would audit cloud software and look at the audit trails. Now, we had people that did lots of different things. And what I noticed was, and we had people in our HR department where we would get people that would apply to work in, a, in, our, in our stores and our HR recruiters wouldn't call them right away. They would wait a month to call a resume. And it wasn't until I started diving into when I shut all these platforms down, I would, you know, you go back and kind of look about, you look, it doesn't really do any good to go look in the past, but, you know, I found out, I found out all kinds of interesting misses from operations that had I paid more attention to how much workload did that person really have? Mm-hmm. You know, I could have probably, I had always thought that I had way too many operational staff for our number of stores. And that was an opportunity. Had I taken some time to really evaluate um, someone's workload, I could probably consolidate many positions. Hmm. Interesting. So you, if you had, you know, when people were working remotely, you would have liked to have done that cloud-based audit to see. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. What else, if you had it to do all over again, might you do differently if you, if you could kind of rewind the tape? Uh, you know, I had a leader that I should have let go many, many years ago. That was great. You know, you know, they, that old saying, you know, there are those that'll get you here, but they're not going to get you there. And I had a great person, great, great person that got me there. But getting where I wanted to go, they were just not the right fit. And um, one of the things that I learned about 2020, I wasn't hard enough, meaning there was so much adversity to conquer during 2020 that the reason I sold is because I got weak. I got tired. I got exhausted. That's why in 2020, I said, I'm going (laughs) to... I got to work on doing hard things. You know, hard things would have been a conversation with that person and get him out of the organization, but I didn't. And, and um, it's not a fault of that person. That person's a great person, uh, but we have different skills and abilities. And when you, when you grow at scale, you get to a point where the people that are around you, if you haven't changed those people, you are going to be directly affected. It's going to affect the whole or enterprise. You've got to make hard decisions and hard decisions like uh, replacing a leader is, is tough, but what's tougher is by not doing it and, and the suffering that you can yield as a result of not doing hard things. That's why I jumped into 75 hard. I don't know if you're familiar with 75 hard, I'm not. I don't know. What is that? If you, if you Google 75 hard, it is two workouts a day. Each has to be 45 minutes. One's outside. Drink a gallon of water. Read 10 pages in a book. Don't drink. Follow a diet. And that's hell of a challenge to do those things. And if you ever have a chance to, to investigate it, there's tons of people tweeting about 75 hard, but it really is a really fantastic exercise to really build your resiliency and how you overcome things. It's through hardship. And in, hmm. in fact, 
the book that that uh, goes along with if you were to read the book talks about happiness and happiness is a pursuit that we all seem to be thriving for but you do gain more happiness when you conquer hard things and so the whole moral of the exercise it's 75 days of doing those two workouts a day a gallon of water and i don't know if how if you've ever done a gallon of water a day it's the hardest challenge in the world in fact i'm dying to use the restroom right now because <laughs> i'm drinking a lot of water. But uh, anyway, um, you know, so at the end of the day, like as leaders and entrepreneurs, we got to do hard things. And sometimes we just have to be uh, willing to have a little bit more gumption to, to do what's really necessary. Well, I, I could agree with you more. And I, I want to make sure you get a chance to relieve yourself. So <laughs> tell, tell people, um, is there like, are you open to re the people reaching out? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Dollars? Absolutely. I'm in, issue? I'm in the EO Nashville chapter and I know you got a lot of large audience of EO, EO members. Yeah. And gals. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And you can, you can reach me at heartline Robert on Twitter, or you can email me at Robert at callproof.com. I have a, an app for outside salespeople. So if you ever need any help managing an outside sales force, uh, that's what I do today. Awesome. And we'll put all that in the show notes at builttosell.com. Robert, it was great to meet you. Hey, awesome to meet you, John. Thanks for having me. Go to the bathroom. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I get to check out 75 hard. Awesome. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.